1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Illegal logging and development in the Amazon has been a problem for years, but it's now becoming an existential concern. Too much more, and the rainforest may turn into savanna. Yet the government is pushing a bill to make land grabbing even easier. And you might not know the name Florian Schneider, a musician who recently passed away. You might not even know Kraftwerk, the band he co-founded. But it's certain those electronic music pioneers inspired all kinds of music that you do know. First up, though...
2: I offer... My deep thanks to the many member states who have expressed their support and solidarity at this assembly.
1: At the closing of the annual gathering of the World Health Organization yesterday, Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus made a call for unity.
0: Let hope be the antidote to fear. Let solidarity be the antidote to division.
1: Dr. Tedros was speaking after the 194 member states passed a resolution for an independent inquiry into the WHO's response to the coronavirus pandemic.
0: We want accountability more than anyone.
1: The shortened two-day virtual meeting was addressed by world leaders, including Xi Jinping, 全面评估,全球应对. Emmanuel Macron, Je veux vous de à and Angela Merkel,
3: and
1: but not Donald Trump. Mr. Trump instead threatened to cut America's funding to the organization permanently over what he has called its China-centric stance. Criticism of the WHO isn't new, but the rift between America and China threatens to undermine its authority just as global cooperation is needed most.
4: The fear was that the assembly would be hijacked by a row over whether Taiwan would be allowed to participate as an observer.
1: Simon Long is The Economist's deputy digital editor.
4: That's something China always opposes in international organizations because it regards Taiwan as part of its own territory and refuses to accept anything that might acknowledge it has some form of sovereignty. In fact, that problem went away just before the Assembly opened with Taiwan withdrawing its attempt. So what it became preoccupied with was an assault, really, by the United States on the World Health Organization itself for the way it's handled the coronavirus pandemic.
1: And so how exactly did that row play out?
4: Well, uh, President Trump himself uh, wrote a letter to Tedros Ghebreyesus, the World Health Organization's Director General laying out a charge sheet. Uh, Some of it, it has to be said, factually inaccurate about the way the WHO has handled the crisis and accusing it basically in in a nutshell of being in China's pocket. And his own health secretary, Alex Azar, took the opportunity of addressing the assembly and used it to attack the World Health Organization in very explicit terms.
1: We must be frank about one of the primary reasons this outbreak spun out of control. There was a failure by this organization to obtain the information that the world needed, and that failure cost many lives. In an apparent attempt to conceal this outbreak, at least one member state made a mockery of their transparency obligations, with tremendous cost for the entire world. We saw that WHO failed at its core mission of information sharing and transparency when member states do not act in good faith. This cannot ever happen again is there anything behind that? Is there any reason to believe on this specific point of, of uh, deference to China that WHO bears any blame?
4: It's certainly true that WHO officials and Dr. Chedros himself have been extremely respectful and complimentary about China's handling of this. That They've gone out of their way to praise it for transparency, which in the light of what we know about the origins of the disease and the slow response in the early days seems rather foolish. And it's praised its lockdown and the way it curbed the disease internally. And as President Trump points out in his letter, it also criticised the US for uh, imposing a ban on travellers from China, which President Trump clearly regards as unfair and partial. Uh, On the other hand, the claim that the WHO is China-centric really doesn't bear a lot of scrutiny. Dr. Tedros has also been extremely complimentary about President Trump. The U.S., as we said, has been in the past responsible for much of the WHO's funding. And it's also provided much of its staff. Many of its experts are, in fact, Americans, some of them American civil servants. So the idea that this is somehow a, a Chinese-run organization is fantasy.
1: And what's been the Chinese authorities' response as, as this, this row has grown?
4: Well, they've rejected President Trump's accusations indignantly, and China paid the WHO the compliment of having its president, Xi Jinping, speak to the World Health Assembly himself on Monday, in which he, of course, defended China's handling of the pandemic. He expressed support for the idea of a, a review not so much into China's handling of it as into the Global response into an independent review of that when the time is ripe, as China put it, and it pledged two billion dollars over two years to the world's fight against the virus.
1: And what's your view on why there is the, the sort of expanding row between America and China? It does it does seem to be something of a distraction at this stage.
4: Indeed, I think you have to see it in in two contexts. One is of deteriorating bilateral relations between the two big powers on a number of fronts, from trade, technology, from China's actions in the South China Sea, in Hong Kong, and so on. And in the context of American domestic politics on the other, that it seems that President Trump has decided to fight the presidential election in November on a platform of keeping America great again, having made America great in his first term, the argument goes he is going to keep America great. And the greatest threat to that on the global stage is a rising threat from China. And it so happens, unfortunately for the WHO, that the pandemic has become a very good forum for President Trump in which to fight that battle
1: but aside from this tit for tat between china and america there there will be this investigation now i mean do do you think that uh, any of the criticisms that have been laid against the who have have a uh, real basis
4: i don't think anybody pretends the who is is a perfect organization i mean it was widely seen as having uh, a very good epidemic in the case of of sars uh, 17 years ago, and a worse pandemic a few years back with Ebola. So criticism of it tends to to wax and and wane. There are structural problems in an institution which is globally funded, where it has local organisations which tend to be accountable to local governments and staffed by placemen from those local governments. So it clearly does need a sort out. And in the review that has been agreed of the way the world has handled the pandemic whenever that happens, because that's not clear, then I expect that there will be criticisms made of the way the WHO has handled this pandemic as well.
1: And do you think that in turn might undermine what it still has to do before this pandemic is behind us?
4: In, In a sense, it came out of this World Health Assembly rather well. It did produce a resolution that everybody signed up to, although the US sort of subsequently suggested reservations about one part which was the part about allowing countries to break patents to make vaccines cheaply should vaccines be found but it did come out with an expression of unity and with the acknowledgement tacit or otherwise that this is the only public health authority the world has and that at a time like this of a global pandemic which is still killing thousands of people every day for which there is no vaccine and no cure we really need AWHO, and this is the only one we've got
1: Simon, thank you very much for your time.
4: Thank you so much for having me, Jason.
0: Seven in ten full time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact. Supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company.
1: Brazil is now the world's fastest-growing coronavirus hotspot. It has more than a quarter of a million confirmed cases, the third-highest tally in the world. The federal response to the crisis has been slammed, at home and abroad, as the country's president, Jair Bolsonaro, has downplayed the pandemic and opposed
4: lockdowns.
1: But while all eyes have been on COVID-19, another problem persists, and could be about to get even worse. Last year, wildfires raged through large swathes of the Amazon rainforest, and deforestation soared to an 11-year high. Scientists warned that tree loss was fast approaching an irreversible tipping point. The earth could lose the Amazon as we know it. Amid the coronavirus crisis, illegal logging in the rainforest has continued, and a new bill before Congress could give land grabbers a helping hand.
2: December of last year, President Jair Bolsonaro introduced a decree that in theory was meant to normalize regulation around public land in the Amazon and help small landowners who have been living on properties they didn't have a right to, to get ownership rights. However, It applied to really big tracts of land and was criticized right off the bat for facilitating the ability for land grabbers or people who invaded public land to eventually turn it into farming or logging or mining land to basically grab legal ownership automatically.
1: Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent, reporting from Sao Paulo.
2: Tuesday was the deadline for Congress to vote on this decree, but Rodrigo Maya, the president of the lower house, decided to let it expire after huge public pressure against it. However, the house has basically converted the decree into a bill, which gives them a little bit more time to argue over it. And because there's a really strong farm lobby in the Congress, it could be voted on and approved as soon as this week.
1: And. Aside from creating land rights for people who have just been land grabbers, I mean, what would it mean if that bill were to pass into law?
2: So it's important to mention that Brazil really does need some kind of law to deal with all of the kilometers of illegally and irregularly occupied public land, in some cases for people who really do need a place to live. But the problem with this decree is the huge amounts of public land and the lack of oversight in the process by which it would automatically become private property could instead hasten the deforestation of the rainforest because it basically gives a a pass to people who have gone on to public land, chopped the trees down, burned them, and then now will be able to claim that it was their property all along.
1: So the general view, then, is that Mr. Bolsonaro's intent here is not really to square away things for those smallholders.
2: Ever since Bolsonaro's campaign in 2018, he's complained that there are just too many rules about what you can do with land in the Amazon. And really, it should be opened up for things like logging and mining and farming. So a lot of people suspect that behind this law is really a desire to make it easier for people who want to develop the Amazon rather than poor people who need land.
1: And do you see anything in the timing of it in that this legislation is happening when everyone is distracted with COVID-19?
2: At the beginning of the pandemic here in Brazil, Rodrigo Maia and his counterpart in the Senate said that they weren't going to consider any bills or decrees that didn't have to do directly with COVID. So the fact that this is now coming to the table does suggest an effort by the farm lobby in Congress to take advantage of people's attention being elsewhere, to try to get something through that really is quite controversial and worrisome.
1: And so what about the, the farmers and the loggers themselves? Are they using the crisis as a smoke stream to carry on with their business?
2: Unfortunately, illegal logging seems to be one of the only activities in Brazil that has continued unabated despite the coronavirus pandemic. In April, deforestation increased by 64 percent compared with the same month a year earlier when it was already up. And so it really does seem like people who are illegally logging and mining in the rainforest are taking advantage of the fact that there are fewer environmental agents out in the field. After the news came out that deforestation was skyrocketing, the government sent the army in to try to help fight illegal logging in the Amazon. It did that last year as well, when there were fires throughout the Amazon that captured the world's attention. But it seems like this sending in the troops is really more of an effort to save face with the international community than a sincere effort to cut back on deforestation.
1: And we've talked before about how the deforestation can have some pretty significant effects if it continues at these elevated rates.
2: So we're actually in a really scary moment right now. Experts believe that if tree loss in the Amazon passes a certain threshold or tipping point, that forest cover will keep shrinking no matter what humans might try to do to stop it. It has to do with the forest's ability to recycle water. And if the Amazon transgresses that tipping point, a lot of the basin could turn into a kind of drier, tropical savanna. That has huge implications for the whole world because the Amazon is a massive carbon dioxide sink. And that makes it one of the most important protections we have left against climate change.
1: So while the pandemic rages, this illegal logging, a sort of indirect effect gets worse. I mean, what about the pandemic itself? How is it affecting the people who do live in the Amazon?
2: The biggest city in the Amazon, Manaus, which is home to about two million people, was the first in Brazil to have its hospital system completely collapse. And a couple of weeks ago, we started seeing pictures of mass graves being dug and lines of people in stretchers and wheelchairs outside of hospitals. That's really worrisome because the numbers of cases and deaths here in Brazil are increasing exponentially in nearly every major city in the country. So what happened in Manaus because of its precarious health system to begin with could happen in other parts of Brazil. The president, Bolsonaro, dismissed this disease to begin with and continues to advocate for an end to lockdowns. I have to say, looking at the graphs for both COVID infections and deforestation, it's a pretty bleak moment for Brazil right now.
1: Sarah, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you, Jason.
1: Earlier this month came news that a towering figure in the music world had passed. Florian Schneider, the enigmatic co-founder of the German electronic group Kraftwerk. The band's albums from the mid-1970s to the early 1980s may have reinvented pop. They spawned half a dozen new genres. They helped to define the digital age. If you listen
3: to any dance music now, anything that uses synthesizers, drum machines, samplers, that music may not be there, or at least not in the form that you hear it, were it not for Florian Schneider's work with Kraftwerk,
1: Tom Nuttle is our Berlin bureau chief and a long-time fan.
3: Kraftwerk emerged from a small avant-garde scene in Dusseldorf in the far west of Germany. And they were part of what was known at first sort of jokingly as the krautrock scene. You can see old footage of them on YouTube playing weird and wonderful wacky music that kind of blended acoustic and electronic sound. But as the years went by, they moved away from that scene and they shed their acoustic instruments and they went fully synthesized from the mid-70s. By the time Kraftwerk went fully electronic, the first thing that you notice when you hear albums like Trans Europe Express or The Man Machine, but for me anyway, it was actually the sheer musicianship of it. The tracks have wonderful sense of melody. You listen to something like Neon Light. It's absolutely gorgeous. A really strong pop sensibility. And then, of course, the rhythmic work in them, which basically laid the groundwork for the entirety of of the dance music revolution that was to emerge 10 or 15 years later. And the next thing from that that you notice is the vocals are often heavily processed, making them sound robotic. The lyrics are often minimal, repeated endlessly. I'm the operator with my pocket calculator. A lot of their tracks start off with some sort of vocal refrain and then veer off into some sort of wonderful, shimmering, synthy improvisations that you can just lose yourself in. Because the lyrics are so minimal, what you really have are tend to be fairly sort of abstract descriptions of specific phenomena. So you have the man machine which does nothing more than repeat the title of the song, but gestures towards some sort of vision of a a hybrid man-android future. Ideas of Europe were also central to some of their music, most obviously in the album Trans Europe Express, 1977. Europe endless, this idea of a borderless Europe is expressed. And of course then in 1985, eight years later, we got the borderless Europe with the Schengen Agreement. But I think this sort of European sensibility, you sort of hear it in a lot of other stuff that they did. I mean, I remember when, as a teenager, first listening to their Computer World album, and the ease in some of the tracks with which they cycle through languages like it's no big thing. You know, I was a a boring, monoglot Brit. And I kind of heard a certain sensibility to it that simply struck me as European in some sort of nebulous way. The sounds themselves, I mean, Florian was really the kind of hero behind the manufacture of the sounds that made work what they were. He was a perfectionist, he was obsessed with sound design, and of course in the 70s, this was an era in which you didn't just dial up presets on your computer synth, you know, he was making these sounds from scratch using synthesizers as big as a room. They were so extraordinarily influential and often in the most unexpected places. So some people credit them with spawning hip-hop because one of the first hip-hop tracks, Planet Rock by Africa Bambata, sampled a track called Numbers for its rhythm and then remade the melody from Trance Europe Express. But I think actually the more important trajectory of influence was over techno, which was started by a group of guys in Detroit in an area called Belleville. These guys were absolutely obsessed with craft work. And then they themselves laid the foundation for almost all of what came to be known as dance music in America and also in Britain and in large parts of Europe. In the sort of mid-80s, they were almost a sort of a victim of their own success. They were so influential that they were almost overtaken by the world that they had brought into existence. There was a 1986 album, Electric Café, and then there was not a, a stroke of new music until 2003, when they released an album rather bizarrely about cycling. And then essentially, Florian Schneider himself left in 2008, under circumstances that were never really explained. And he released a slightly underwhelming track about plastic pollution in the oceans in 2015. And really, that was the last that we heard from him until his death was announced from cancer on May the 7th. Although he may have actually have died a few weeks before that. To imagine a world without craftwork would almost be like severing off one giant branch of contemporary culture from which so much else has grown and blossomed over the years. Ever since his death was announced, um, I have been absolutely rinsing all of their tunes. I've hardly listened to anything else over the last week. And perhaps it's the, the greatest testament to the legacy of Florian Schneider is that this music never, ever gets old.